We just talked about what nature and character actually means, because it's kind of an interesting phrase that we don't use much in our English vocabulary. We talked about the Hawaiian definition of perfect, the coming together of everything good, and how this is a season for you where there's just going to be a, the streams of goodness pouring into your life from different directions. We talked about how God introduces himself to us uh, in his book that he wrote, that he's God and he's the creator and he's never stopped creating. That's his first title, that he revealed himself to us as light. And by doing that, he's saying, I want to be seen. I want to be known. Um, And we talked about how even before the Bible, which is a fantastic book, and I've based my life on it, but before the Bible, people could interact with God and know stuff. And Paul writes that they could even know his invisible qualities to the point where people are without excuse. That's pretty crazy. In other words, when somebody stands before God, And they say, I'm sorry, God, I didn't know who you were. There is no excuse for them. No excuse. That's pretty powerful. God feels, and he's God, that he has made himself so evident that there is no excuse for people not to know him. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? And so uh, even his invisible qualities can be clearly seen. And we can see that in what he has made, his unlimited power to create new things and to restore, and the fact that he's organized and he's a planner and he's a designer. And we just looked at a few tiny examples. One reason why I love Hawaii so much is just because we're just surrounded by his creation. I mean, there's just such beauty on this island, and the Lord will speak to you from uh, the things that he has made. I love our symmetry and how he created us. We talked about God's timing with the um, and the creation of the moonflower, and even his sense of humor, and uh, and even how you know we can see that things in nature that kind of reflect his intentions, and like all these different groups, you know, kind of signaling to us that he does, doesn't want us to be alone or independent, but he's made us to be interdependent on him first of all, and uh, and on each other. And we talked about how knowing God takes a step of faith, but it's not a scary step of faith into the unknown. But it's just stepping forward with a God who loves us and who cares for us and uh, who knows us. And it's this relationship building process. And that relationship with God we talked about happens from the inside out. We looked at the wedding of Cana and how Jesus made this prophetic statement. You know, no longer will you be cleansed ceremonially from the outside, but by the blood of Jesus from the inside. And just how uh, what a huge paradigm this shift this was, because At that time, people could almost tell the godliness of other people by whether or not they were doing their sacrifices, they were going to the place of worship, they were doing all these kinds of things. And now, Jesus is saying he's revolutionizing that, and it's going to be in a relationship from the inside out. You can go to church if you want, but as uh, Keith Green said back in the 70s, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. And, uh, And he's right. And Justin Bieber tried to copy that recently with Taco Bell, but it was really lame. Uh, it was actually a Keith Green, Keith Green phrase, but bless Justin Bieber's heart. He's trying his best. Okay, uh, and then we, so we talked about how relationship with God happens first uh, on the inside in our hearts and our minds. And uh, we asked that question of what keeps us from wholly embracing that kind of relationship with God and that kind of intimacy with God, and it's fear. It's, and it's a fear that entered um, with Adam in the garden. And so I just mentioned the story of, uh, of my friend who met me on the plane and asked what the Bible has to say about love. And I said, you know, that it says that God is love and that the opposite of love isn't hate. There are things that we should hate, but that the opposite of love is fear. Because the Bible says perfect love drives out all fear. 
And uh, we looked at Peter. Peter was a great example of this. When he first met Jesus, he pushed him away because of fear. And he said, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And even though he had great revelation from the Father and, you know, these amazing encounters with Jesus, you know, he still reached that point where he kind of hit the wall and, and let him down. He went right back to what he was doing before. And, uh, and yet Jesus just kind of captured him and, uh, and recreated the scenario of how they first met and then got together with Peter and said, Peter, you know, your priorities need to be my priorities. Your priorities need to change. Do you love me more than these fish? And, uh, and then we talked about how um, Peter must have been remembering back on that time when Jesus prophesied over him and said, from now on you will catch men when he was up there preaching after Pentecost and 3,000 people uh, came to know Jesus. Fear can cause us to doubt the character of God, and thereby we doubt ourselves and our value in God's kingdom work. And, uh, and God just wants to embrace us and literally hold us to the point where, where things just break in our lives. The fear of rejection, uh, the fear of, of uh, failure, the fear, all these other fears that are in our life. God can just hold us and, and, and so interact with us on such a deep, personal, intimate level that those things just break free and break out of our lives and are no longer a part of our relationship with Him and even our relationship with people. So we ended with that question of how can we have a relationship uh, with God without fear? And uh, that's what we're going to pick up today. Any questions from yesterday? You don't have to sit there and think up a question, but if you had one, um, I always give an opportunity for one. And I don't feel bad if nobody has one, so don't panic. Um, Are we good? We good? Okay. Yep, back there. Well, in the Hebrew, it's a little clearer because it's like light be revealed, but it's in the first person. So it's kind of like, or another way of saying it would be light be seen, but it's spoken in the first person, which is kind of a hard thing to connect in English because we don't do that about ourselves, if that makes sense. So yeah, that's kind of of where that comes from. Yeah, Uh uh-huh. Uh, I just want to start, before we answer that question that, that I'd asked about how we have the relationship without fear, I want to start with just a, a couple of important kind of foundational blocks I need to insert before we get there. And one of them is this. Relationship with God begins with a choice. The greatest gift that God gives in the whole framework of love is free will. Free will is the greatest gift that God gives us in the whole framework of love. And it's the greatest gift we have as human beings in our framework of love. I could have, when I met Hiran, I could have somehow forced her into the relationship through maybe violence or, um, you know, through um, control. Men um, often uh, are control, you know, struggle with control issues. She could have also somehow manipulated the relationship through seduction or manipulation, women, because women are good at the seduction manipulation thing. But the thing is, you know, we would have never known whether or not each other really loves each other <laughs> because we, we would know deep in our hearts that we were never really free to make that decision. If somehow, you know, love is not controlling or manipulating, love is freeing. 
And if out of all the guys in the world, she was totally free to choose relationship with me, and she chooses me, and out of all the women in the world, and I'd met a lot in 99 countries, uh, you know, I, I was free to make the choice to um, choose her, then that is one of the most powerful components we actually have in our relationship, is knowing that that's the choice we made. And uh, we have free will because we were created in the image of God. And God has free will. <laughs> it's a really simple understanding. We have free will because we were created in the image of God. And God has free will. He can do whatever he like, right? And, uh, and we read that we were created in the image of God in Genesis 1.27 and in Genesis 9.6. And, and even Jesus was created in the image of God. We read, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so because he came as a human being, there was, Jesus was actually created in God's image as well. Now, we see this whole thing of free will throughout, throughout Scripture. We see, for instance, in Deuteronomy, God says, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and destruction. And then he goes on to tell them what will happen if they choose life and what will happen if they choose death. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, he says, now choose life. <laughs> He's laying the choice out for them. And he's saying, look, you could choose life or death. And he goes into all the details of what's going to happen if they choose either one. But then he's like pleading with them, you know, but choose life. I mean, that's the right decision to make. But they were totally free to choose. You know, the, the flip side of that is that we can't blame anybody else for the crap we get in other than ourselves. <laughs> Right? That's what James says in James chapter 1. He says, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then he says, and after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This means that we can't blame anyone else for our own decisions. We'd like to. Um, we're kind of happy doing that. We're very comfortable doing that. It's a lot easier to do that. But in reality, we are responsible for our own decisions. As a matter of fact, one of the most powerful testimonies I've heard was when I was in West Africa and I was in an area where there were a lot of child soldiers. And this one guy was telling me the story of how he came to Christ. And it came when he just knelt down before the cross one day and asked God for forgiveness for killing the people he had killed as a child. Now, the United Nations would say, well, you know, but he wasn't really responsible for that because, you know, he had been kidnapped as a child and stolen from his parents and trained as a child to be a child soldier and all that kind of stuff. But in reality, even though all that had happened, he knew he was responsible for his own choices. And when he finally owned up to the fact that he was responsible for his own choices before the cross, he just felt the presence of God just fall on his life and he had a dramatic conversion. Jesus can't even force us to decide stuff. I, you look at this in, in Luke 13, 34. You know, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Even Jesus was expressing his desire. He's, he's like, how often I've desired to gather you together. I mean, this is really what I want for you. But you are not willing. I preached a message in church a couple months ago. You know, what on earth is wrong with us when we know Jesus has this massive desire to do things and we're not willing? 
and I, and I spoke on what are the components that can create an unwillingness in us uh, to, to just be a part of what Jesus wants us to be. You know, even Jesus had freedom of choice. I mean, he said in Luke chapter 22, if you are willing to take this cup from me, you know, take it, but yet not your will, um, not, not my will, but yours be done. It's interesting that Jesus prayed that in a garden, you know, a garden where Adam and Eve had said, not your will, but ours be done. And Jesus prays this prayer of repentance in a garden and says, you know, yet not my will, but yours be done. So this component of free will is a very important component for us in love. And I'm not speaking on relationships, but I'll just say this. You know, guys, if you're saying, is that the girl I'm supposed to marry? God's not going to answer that question. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Isn't that weird? Because it's asked from a position of male pride. You know, you're assuming she wants to marry you. (laughs) She's totally free to choose. But I mean, you can say, God, is it okay for me to pursue a relationship with that girl? And the Lord might say yes or no. And if he says yes, then go for it. (laughs) But if she says no, then back off. (laughs) Right? Uh, and so, uh, you're, you know, you, you can, you can pursue and do your best, you know, but, uh, but at the end of it, you know, it's, uh, she's totally free to make her own decision. So relationship with God, the other thing I want to say about relationship with God is that we have this, you know, it's a choice, but the other thing I'd say about relationship with God is that it's not from a distance. It's from a place of intimacy. Relationship with God is not from a place of distance, but it's from a place of intimacy. Now, I will tell you, uh, from having traveled a lot, there are some cultures that have a more formal relationship with God because they're a more formal culture. And there's cultures that have a less formal relationship with God. And sometimes they get confused by each other. For instance, my Korean friends will hear an American praying, and the American is like, you know, uh, hey, God, what's up, dude? I uh, just want to say, you know, uh, like, you're awesome, dude, God, like, awesome. You know, and they'll think, my gosh, like, what is that guy doing? Because in their mind, this is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the creator of the universe, and calling him dude might not be the best way to pray. Now, I would say this to my Western friends. The next time you have a prayer request to submit before God, like, oh, God, I need money for outreach. I would suggest that you just stop for a moment and picture the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on his throne. And he's surrounded by millions of creatures that you've never even seen before who are saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And the angels are are circling the throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there are billions of people some from nations that we didn't even know existed, who are already standing before the throne of God waiting for us to get there, who are already worshiping God. And then all of a sudden, everything just stops. And they all turn and look at you. I would suggest, um, hey God, I need money for outreach. Might not be the best approach. I'm just saying. (laughs) As a matter of fact, there is protocol for meeting with God. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And there is a protocol to meeting with him. If I had to fly to England 
and meet with Queen Elizabeth, I'd have to fly there three days early and I would be briefed on the protocol of how to meet with her. I, I, would, I would be told about how to greet her, how to present my gift to her, if we're eating together, how to eat, when to talk, when not to talk, all that kind of stuff. There's a long briefing that goes on when you meet with the queen. And if you're a foreign dignitary, like the president of a country or something, the, the queen's uh, emissary will actually fly to your country to brief you on, on meeting with the queen. So there is protocol to meeting with the king of kings. And the Bible is full of this protocol. Things like bow your knees before God. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> hmm. uh, another one would be kneel before the Lord our maker, it says in Psalm 95.6. The Bible is actually full of protocol in meeting with God. Hey, here's protocol for how to make your request before God. It says by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request before God. That's a great idea with Thanksgiving. Like, God, I just want to thank you for how amazing you have been in my life. I realize I have everything I need. Honestly, I have everything. I've got a roof over my head. You know, I have everything I need, really. There's things I want, but I have everything I need. You know, and I just thank you for being so amazing. Let me tell you how powerful Thanksgiving is. There's this, um, there's this story in the Bible where Jesus heals these ten lepers, right? And only one of them comes back and gives thanks. And a lot of pastors like to preach on, you know, how ungrateful most people are. Um, and only one person came to give thanks. And that's true. I mean, whatever, that's fine. But what's interesting in that story is 10 lepers come to see Jesus and Jesus heals them. And then he says to them, go and show yourself to the high priest. And it says, as they went, um, they were healed. Okay. And then they got to the high priest, and the high priest saw them, and the high priest said that they, he saw that they were whole. Okay? Now, by the way, if you pray for somebody for healing, it's okay to tell them to go to a doctor and get checked out. That is not a lack of faith. That is wisdom. Even Jesus told them to go to the high priest and get checked out. I had a friend in seminary who... Uh, got healed of diabetes and just really felt he was healed of diabetes and he stopped taking his insulin and he died the next day. Uh, so it's a good idea to go to the doctor and get checked out. There, that is not a lack of faith. That is wisdom. If it's, if it's some kind of thing like that where you're taking medication for it and all that stuff, get checked out. Uh, and, and the priest saw that they were whole. Now what's interesting is Jesus then says to the one leper who comes back and gives thanks, Jesus says to him, hey, your faith has made you well. Well, that's kind of odd. Why would Jesus say that to him? Your faith has made you well. He's already healed. I mean, we know that. He, he was healed when they went and the high priest saw he holds. So why would Jesus say that to him? It's really interesting when you look in the Greek, the word healed means that their skin cleared up. They were lepers, right? And so as they went, their skin cleared up. When the, when, the, when the high priest, or the priest, not high priest, when the priest looked at them and checked them out, he saw that they were whole. And this actually speaks to, you know, emotions and physical. It's like literally they were whole. I mean, they were super excited. They're not lepers anymore. It's like they didn't have to go, you know, unclean, unclean and yell that, uh, you know, now they're whole. But then when Jesus says to the one leper who came back, and he says, your faith has made you well. Do you know what this word is? This word is, it's the Greek word sozo. 
And sozo is one of my favorite words. It's the word for salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be sozoed. It says in the Bible, you will be saved, right? And so it's the word for salvation. So what Jesus, there's a few places in the New Testament where Jesus actually promises salvation to people, right? Like the thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is actually one of those places. He says, you are saved. You're sozoed. He says to the one leper who came back, the other nine were healed. The other nine were whole. But do you see the power of thanksgiving? Only one of them. Jesus said to them, you're saved. You're sozoed. So that's the power of gratitude. That's the power of thanksgiving. So it's not a small thing. I'm telling you, you know, uh, thanksgiving is very, very powerful. Gratitude is so powerful. We might mention that again a little bit later on as we look at something else. Um, And then come with clean hands and a pure heart is another good protocol verse in Scripture. That's a good idea. (laughs) When you come before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, come with clean hands and a pure heart. Pure heart speaks to motivation, by the way. Um, What is our motivation for coming to him? Um, Here's another one with thanksgiving. Enter his gates of thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Again, protocol for how to enter the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Protocol helps us remember that God is God and we are not. Everybody say that. God is God and we are not. Say it again. Yeah, that's such an important understanding for us in our you know, self-centered, self-motivated, self-improving generation (laughs) is that it's not all about us. We bow before him. You know, we sacrifice and we give to him and we pledge obedience to him. You know, you don't have to write all these things down, but you get the idea, right? I mean, it's not all about us. You know, here's another one. We offer our lives to him and we do his will and we're on his side. I love this passage of Joshua. Joshua is about to take the Israelites over the Jordan, you know, to conquer, is, conquer Israel. And they're going to attack Jericho. And it's the night before the big event. And let me tell you, this is like the biggest event of the Old Testament. You know, this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. It's the fulfillment of um, God's promises to his people. It's the going into the promised land. No pressure, right, on Joshua as the leader? <laughs> no pressure, Joshua. It's just, you know, history making. Uh, and so he's up the night before and he can't sleep and he's pacing back and forth. And just like any of us would be, you know, he's like, let's just get this thing over with tomorrow, you know, fighting Jericho and everything. And all of a sudden this guy comes up to him with his sword drawn, which is like the equivalent of a guy coming up to us with like a Uzi or something pointed at us. And so he's got this sword drawn and Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? Well, of course God is for them. I mean, these are the chosen people about to go to the promised land. Like, of course God is for you, Joshua, right? No. (laughs) The guy says, neither. Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. But as commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. By the way, Joshua, take off your shoes because that ground you're standing on, it's not yours. (laughs) It's God's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. (laughs) It's like this little reminder to Joshua. You know, Joshua, God is not on your side. You know, you're on his side. He's not on my team. I'm on his team. And I'm happy to be on his team. I mean, I'd rather be on his team than anybody else's, right? It's a good little reminder to Joshua before he fights 
this battle. Here's the amazing thing about God, though, is we go through all of the protocol, and then God responds to our protocol. How does God respond to our protocol? This, by the way, is where the fear of the Lord comes into play. Because remember, we talked about how there is no fear in God yesterday, and we talked about how perfect love casts out all fear. And and sometimes people will say to me, well, what about the fear of the Lord? Yeah, you know, we were never intended to have the fear of the Lord. That was God God was hoping we would never have to have the fear of the Lord. That was that the fear of the Lord is a consequence of sin. But uh here's where the fear of the Lord comes into play is we do the protocol, you know, because God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we understand our position in all of this is that we are sinful human beings in the presence of a holy God. However, then God responds to our protocol. And you know what he says? He says, you could just call me daddy. Now, I know for some of you, you might have an allergic reaction to the idea that God is father. (laughs) maybe because of your own experience or whatever. But uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later this week, so don't panic. No allergic reaction here. God just says, you can call me daddy. You know, a good picture of this is when I'm preaching sometimes in our church, I'll see Acacia just kind of stick her head in the door, and I'll see this head kind of just sideways peeping through the doorway, and then she kind of looks this way, and then she kind of looks this way, and then boom, she makes a beeline down the aisle, you know, comes running down the aisle, she comes running up, to the pulpit and she stands there and hands me a pretzel or something. I mean, what do I say? You know, Acacia, get out of here. I'm preaching. <laughs> oh, I just pick her up and I say, hi, sweetie. Thanks. And I just keep talking, you know, and eventually I know like after 10 seconds, she's going to get bored and wiggle her way out and she'll go running back down the aisle again. But, you know, we could do the protocol, but see, that's worshiping God from a distance. And I would say most of our worship actually occurs in the protocol area. Unfortunately, where God wants to draw us into the intimacy level, where he says, look, you're just part of the family. You, look, you know, you don't have to stay down there with all the foreign dignitaries and everything in the place of protocol. You know, you can just call me dad. And we know that's true because Jesus says, you know, when his disciples say, how should we pray? He doesn't say, you know, well, you have to say, oh, God, Jesus is father. <laughs> right? He says, you can just say our father in heaven. Paul says, you know, and. In Romans 8, he says, you know, you can just call me Appa. You've not received a spirit, right? That's the theme verse for your DTS. That is um, a spirit of fear, but of uh, adoption. You can just say, if you're Korean, it's Appa, Father. If you're um, Jewish, it's Abba. <laughs> if you're like um, American or Canadian, it's Daddy. Uh, you know, I, I remember when... Um, when I was about four years old, and uh, my dad would, like every, did you know that the average four-year-old asks 467 questions a day? Did you know that? And if they're in a healthy family, the average four-year-old can ask up to 600 questions a day. <laughs> it's incredible. I'm telling you, man. <laughs> when you're driving in the van and you're just getting peppered with questions, <laughs> Like, oh my gosh, will this ever end? But it is a phase. But anyways, when I was four years old, my dad would go outside and he would cut the grass. You know, he'd mow the lawn with a lawnmower every Saturday. And so one day, you know, I went out there and like every good four-year-old, I said to my dad, what are you doing? And my dad, you know, stopped the lawnmower and turned it over and he showed me the blades and how it cuts the grass. And he says, I'm cutting the grass. 
and like every good four-year-old, because probably 80% of their questions are why, I said, why? And so dad said, because if we don't cut the grass, it'll grow really tall and we won't be able to see you. I was like, oh no, we need to cut the grass. <laughs> and then he did even better than that. He, he took me down to the hardware store and he bought me my own lawnmower. And so every Saturday we were out there mowing the lawn together. And, uh, you know, I always felt really bad, though, because his lawnmower kind of sucked. Uh, you know, it didn't blow bubbles. And, and so I'd say to him, you know, do you want to trade lawnmowers? Because <laughs> yours kind of sucks. You can, you can blow bubbles, too, if you want. And he's like, no, that's okay. You can have that one. And, and you, know, er, er, you know, he'd fill up his stuff with gasoline, and I'd fill up my stuff with bubble stuff, you know. And, and so every Saturday we're out there, you know, bubbles everywhere while Dad is mowing the lawn. You know, it wasn't until years later I realized, like, my lawnmower didn't even cut the grass. Now, why would my dad have bought me a lawnmower that didn't even cut the grass and actually just blew bubbles? You know, one time I was talking to the Lord about this whole aspect of relationship, and you know what he said to me? He reminded me of that memory. And he said, you know, Derek, I don't need more dancers. I don't need more accountants. I don't need more business people. I don't need more artists. I don't need more anything, you know. The whole reason I gave you any kind of talent or gifting at all is because I was hoping you would enjoy a relationship with me while I do my work. He said, because it's my work. It's not your work. It's too dangerous for you anyways. <laughs> Cut your toes off. It's my work. And I realized the reason why my dad bought me a lawnmower that didn't even cut the grass was because he wanted us to just enjoy relationship with each other. I look back on those memories and they're really precious. My dad and I out there doing something really important for a couple hours just being together, enjoying relationship. Andrew didn't want a bubble blower. He wanted one that made lots of noise. So I got him a little noise-making lawnmower when he was little, and we'd go and mow the lawn together. And The kind of relationship God wants to have with you is not the relationship in the protocol area. It's where we're able to just enjoy relationship with Him because that's why He created us. Now, you don't have to write these things down, but I'm just going to say them because they're important, and it's this. It's that this kind of relationship is only possible because of the work of Christ. And I'm not going to go into all of these different things, but it's because of the life he lived. It's because of his death. It's because of his resurrection. And he didn't stop there. It's also because of his mediation before the throne of God that we read about in 1 Timothy 2.5. The, the only way that we can possibly have that kind of relationship with God is because of the work of Jesus. But Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, that way we're able to draw near to God, our Father and our Creator. You see how he has both of those in there? He's saying, you know, we can draw near to God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and also our Dad. We read in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. That spirit of fear is not from Him. If He's not given it to us, it's come from either of two places, either the work of the enemy or our own stupid decisions. <laughs> because it's not from him. 
So the spirit of fear uh, is not from him, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I, I just want to talk a little bit more about how powerful this spirit of fear can be. Because, you know, we see it in people throughout Scripture. And I just want to talk about Moses for a second. You know, Moses, you all know who Moses is, right? You've seen the Prince of Egypt? And uh, <laughs> hopefully you've read your Bibles too. <laughs> but but um, Moses, you know, he was born uh, at a time when they were killing all the boys and stuff, right? And then he was put in the basket and he was shipped down the river and then Pharaoh's daughter found him and raised him in in his own court and uh, and all that stuff. And then Moses, we read this interesting passage where fear enters his life. And what happened was he was he saw an Egyptian fighting with an Israelite and uh, he killed the Egyptian. And then he buried the guy in the sand, which is a stupid place to bury somebody. If you're going to bury somebody, don't do it in the sand because the wind washes the sand away or blows the sand away and the waves take the sand away. Anyways, uh, so it was a dumb place to bury somebody. And, of course, they quickly found out what happened. And it says, Moses became afraid, and he ran to Midian, ran away, where he was tending sheep for 40 years. Now, I, I don't know how many of you have been around sheep a lot. How many of you have been, been around sheep? Have you, how many of you had, like, like really awesome discussions with sheep? Anybody? Yeah, where they just, you know, they're pouring out their life to you, and, and you're just, like, counseling them on... Yeah, exactly. The reason I say that is because Moses was with sheep for 40 years. And I can imagine his conversations when something like this. And you'll see why I say this in a second, because uh, you'll see it, you'll see the biblical path for it. But I think his conversations are something like this, you know, like. I used to really um, kind of be kind of famous, actually, <laughs> you know. Um, I grew up, actually, I know Pharaoh, personally, you know, like the Pharaoh, you know. And the sheep would just be like, And I think Moses just kind of would beat himself up. Like, I just, oh, man. I did something so stupid. You know, I killed an Egyptian. And I'm sure he had these conversations, because I don't think Moses is any different from you and I. I think, just like us, you know, he's constantly rehearsing the negativity on the stage in the theater of his mind, just over and over and over, rehearsing that play of negativity. A matter of fact, there's a verse that says, you know, when he killed the Egyptian, he thought the Israelites were going to follow him out of Egypt, but none of them did, which is kind of interesting. So he knew his calling. (laughs) He kind of knew, you know, there's not very many people like me. I've been raised, you know, in in Pharaoh's court, and I can speak to him about this enslavement of the Israelites, and obviously I'm here for a purpose. So he kind of knew that, but nobody followed him out. Now there comes a moment where there's a bush burning, but it's not really burning, and, and because it's in the wilderness, it could catch the whole wilderness on fire. So he runs up there to see what's going on, and he finds out it's not really burning, and then he hears this voice. Have any of you seen, like, the old, old, old Ten Commandments movie? Yeah, and it's like, Moses, <laughs> take off your shoes. And the prince of Egypt is like, Moses, Moses. I don't know how it was, but isn't that cool? Like throughout scripture, we see God speaking, right? And God said to Ezekiel, and God said to Daniel, and God said to, and God said to, you know, we, we, but how did he speak to them? And, you know, I don't think any different from how he speaks to us. I'm glad God doesn't speak audibly to me. I just scare the crap out of me every time. Derek, what? Jesus. <laughs> What? Man. <sighs> okay, go ahead. 
Anyway, so he says, Moses, you know, take off your shoes. And then God begins to tell Moses that he wants him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, right? And and Moses comes up with all these, like, hesitational kind of oppositional statements, like, oh, come on, like, how will they know you sent me, and all this kind of stuff. And then he makes a really big mistake in his arguing with God. If you're going to argue with God, then don't do this mistake, because this is a bad mistake. Everybody say bad mistake. Bad mistake. Bad mistake. You know, in Hebrew, um, if it says you're really angry with somebody, it says your nose is very short. Did you know that? Uh, and if you're patient, it says your nose is very long. And the reason is because in the Middle East, um, and, and where's Egyptian friend? Where? Uh, yeah, see, uh, there we go back there. Yeah. In the Middle East, right, you know, when they're yelling at each other, they're like right in each other's faces, right? They could be talking about the weather. Everybody thinks they're like, you know, about to, you know, explode, but they're actually just arguing about whether it's going to be sunny or rainy tomorrow. Anyways, they get right in each other's faces. And so it says their nose is very short. The shortest God's nose gets in Scripture (laughs) is with Moses at this part. It says God's nose got very, 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 very short with Moses. (laughs) Now, there's a reason why his nose got so short with Moses, where he got right in Moses' face. It's because Moses was arguing, and all of a sudden he says, you know, he says, I am slow of speech and tongue. Look at that. I am slow of speech and tongue. The reason why God's nose got so short was because he was saying, Moses, did I make a mistake when I made you? Because he, he gets his nose gets short and he says, Moses, who gave man his mouth? See, now we're, we're, now we're insulting God the Creator. We're not just coming up with excuses, but we're insulting God the Creator. Like, oh, you're so right, Moses. I totally forgot that I gave you that mouth and I called you. This is a big mistake. I'm sorry. Turn off the fire. Um, Sorry, Moses. Um, Go back to your sheep. He gets really in Moses' face and he says, I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, you got to admire Moses because he's the most sovereign person in the world. Perfect person to lead the Israelites. And, (laughs) And he says, you know, even with God in his face, he says, send someone else to do it. This is not a good response to God, by the way, okay? If God calls you to do something, there are good responses, right? There's like Isaiah. Isaiah said, here am I, send me. That's a good response. Samuel said, you know, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's a good response. Um, Ananias said, yes, Lord, when God called to him. That was great. Jonah, well, Jonah, you know, anyways, the second time was pretty good, right? (laughs) One time I was driving my car down the freeway and I had this thought pop into my head. What was the prayer that Jonah prayed? Apparently it was pretty successful, right? One day he's in the fish, next day he's getting spit out. So obviously something he said (laughs) was really good. So I went back to the prayer of Jonah and I came across Jonah 2 verse 8 where where Jonah prays in the belly of the fish and he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And the picture God gave me was he came and knocked at my door of my house. And I opened the door and there's God standing there with like something behind his back like he wanted to show me something. And I'm like, what, 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 what do you got, what do you got? And he's like, and he's trying to decide, should I show him, should I show him? And then all of a sudden I look down and in my hand is this rotten, stinking, black, oozing all over the place banana in my hand. And I'm just clinging to it. And then the Lord kind of steps to the side, and behind him, for miles and miles and miles, are banana trees ripe with bananas. (laughs) And the Lord is like, Derek, I want to give you that, but you're clinging to that. (laughs) Oh, 
Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Here's what is amazing about Moses. When he said, send someone else to do it. Oh, it just went out again, Dan. When Moses said, send someone else to do it. Just imagine what Moses was actually giving up here. He was giving up his destiny. He was giving up the blessing that was going to come on him and on his family for generations. He was giving up the priestly anointing that was going to come on Aaron. He was giving up uh, the, 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 the freedom of his people from slavery. He was giving up all of these things when he said, send someone else to do it. Hey, guess what, my dear DTS friends? It's not all about you. It's even about generations to come. The decisions you're making. Could it be that God so wants to use you and bless you and anoint you that he has plans for generations to come through you? And when we say, you know, God, I just don't really feel it. (laughs) Just imagine what we could be giving up. Now, what's interesting is, you know, there's several times in Acts where people retrace the history of Israel, like like Peter's speech in Acts chapter 2. One of my favorite speeches in there, too, other than Peter's, which is probably my favorite speech in the Bible, is the speech that Stephen made before he was going to get stoned to death. Not like stoned, like that kind of stone, but like stoned to death, right? And so, so see, I know it's confusing in English because you're like, just before Stephen got stoned, and everybody's like, what? He got stoned? Um, the rock's thrown at him, right? Okay, so... So just before Stephen got stoned to death, um, he gives this tremendous speech. And as he's speaking, he's, he's, talk, he's retracing the history of Israel. And, and as you read the speech, you're like, okay, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's talking about Abraham. He's talking about da-da-da. Yeah, there's Abraham again, Egypt, the king, Joseph. Yeah, we all know that story and blah, blah, blah. And you're kind of reading what Stephen was talking about. And then he gets to Moses. And you're like, you read, at that time, Moses was no ordinary child for three months, he was cared for in his father's house. Then he was placed outside. Pharaoh's daughter took him in, brought him up, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, you hit this verse here. In Acts 7.22, it says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Huh. Slow speech and tongue. Powerful in speech and action. Slow of speech and tongue. Powerful, slow, powerful, slow, powerful. Hmm. Now, what's going on here? Well, this is one of the, you know, inconsistencies in the Bible, so we ought to just throw it out. (laughs) Or, Moses, after 40 years of sitting with sheep and beating himself up, had such a perspective about himself, a view of himself, that was not even true. Could it be that Moses had beat himself up so much with shame and condemnation that the perspective he had on his life was not the perspective that God had on his life? Could God's nose have gotten so short with Moses that he was so frustrated because this is what Moses believed about himself when this is the truth about Moses? You can have such a perspective on your life 
That is absolutely not true. Based on, on all the rehearsing of the crap in your past. And it is not the perspective that God has of your life. Because the truth about Moses, we know, is that he was powerful in speech and action. As a matter of fact, there is not a single place in Scripture where we ever see Moses slow of speech and tongue. He always has the right words to say, whether it's before God, whether it's on Mount Sinai, surrounded by the glory of God, whatever, whether he's, you know, in front of the Israelites, whether he's leading the people, whether he's talking with his father-in-law, he was never slow of speech and tongue. He was powerful in speech and action, which is a good quality of a leader, by the way, not just powerful in speech, but powerful in action, too. (laughs) He was powerful in speech and action. Listen. The fear of God, remember? I mean, not the fear of God. I told, you, I told you yesterday that fear can cause us to doubt the character of God and thereby doubt ourselves and our value in God's kingdom work. Remember that? And I think that Moses had such a perspective of himself that was untrue that when God actually called him, he was willing to sacrifice his entire destiny, the anointing of God, all the stuff God wanted to do through his life and through his brother and all this stuff. He was willing to give that all up because of the perspective of himself. Listen, the, one of the greatest things you're going to receive in this DTS is God's perspective on you. It's going to start in this week. It's God's perspective on you, which is often radically different from how we see ourselves. (laughs) There's this other kind of interesting passage with Moses. It's kind of towards the end of Moses' life. And it's kind of astonishing, really. Moses says to God, God, I still don't really know who you are. Now, this is after he's seen the parting of the Red Sea. He's seen the plagues. He's seen all of these things that God did. And he says, you know, God, those are all great power demonstrations. (laughs) But who are you really? Like, really, who are you? And he just says to God, can you just show me who you are? Uh, You know, the glory of God is not some kind of nebulous concept. The glory of God is a very well-defined thing by God himself. As a matter of fact, it's in this passage. Moses says, I don't really know who you are. And he says, God, just, just show me who you are. And God, just out of his love, because he loves us and wants to reveal himself to us, you know, he says, okay, Moses, he says, I'll show you who I am. And he passes in front of Moses. And this is what God says about himself. I just want to read this to you. This is, you know, God just defining who he is. And he says, you know, Moses, he says, I am the Lord. He says, I'm compassionate and I'm gracious. He says, I'm slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. I maintain love to thousands and I forgive wickedness, rebellion and sin. And I don't leave the guilty unpunished. This list is from God himself about God himself. (laughs) If ever there's a list we should memorize, it's this one. And I've heard people say, you know, why is God so loving in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, he's all angry and stuff. If somebody says that to you, you know, don't, don't, 
don't slap them in the face or anything, but just gently take them to Exodus 34, which is in the Old Testament, and have them look at this list. <coughs> compassionate means, compassionate is an action word. Compassionate means not only do I see someone who's in suffering, but I'm going to do something about it. Like when he says, I, I heard the voice of the Israelites crying out to me and I saw their suffering, so I'm going to come down from heaven and set them free. That's compassion. Compassion is an action word. It's not just empathy or pity, but it's an action word. Gracious. I love the graciousness of God. He's not crude. He's not crass. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. Just those three words are very powerful in our current culture where people are so quick to get angry and stuff and so quick to get offended about everything. Let me tell you something right now. There is no offense that can't just be left at the foot of the cross. I'm so tired of seeing Christians even offended at everything. But you know what that tells me? They just haven't spent enough time with Jesus. Because if they spent time with Jesus, they would see what the real offense is in this world. And it's that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is crucified on a cross for them. And their offense pales in comparison. That he's abounding in love. He is overflowing with love. He's and faithfulness. Faithfulness. I don't know if any of you have been hurt by unfaithful people, but God is faithful. He will always remain faithful to you. Maintaining love. This is one of my favorites. I do a lot of weddings down at the resorts here. Um, and, you know, I tell young couples, I say, you know, it's important for you to maintain the relationship. It's like a car. If you don't put gas in it, it won't run. If you don't put oil in it, the head gasket will blow up. <laughs> you have to maintain your car. And it's the same with a relationship. They need to maintain their marriage. They need to go to marriage conferences, read books together, help other people together, do, do those kinds of things that maintain the relationship. I love that God says, you know, I maintain, I maintain the relationship. Isn't that beautiful? Three different categories that he forgives there. I won't get into them, but forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Amazing. And one of my favorite aspects of God is that he's got our back. He's going to punish the guilty. You know, Mao Zedong in China, during a time of peace in China, killed 76 million people. That's more than all of the world's dictators put together. I mean, I hope he gave his life to Jesus or whatever. I really do, because... That guy needed to be restored, you know what I mean? <laughs> but if he didn't, I'm sure glad God is avenging the death of those 76 million people. And you know what? He's doing it right now. <laughs> you know how he's doing it? Between 40 and 70,000 new Christians every day in the nation of China, the fastest growing church in the world. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> See, God's vengeance is, looks a little different from ours. But I love the fact that even justice issues aren't my responsibility. I know there's a lot of flag waving about justice issues nowadays. You know, justice belongs in the hands of God because only he knows the full history. Our job is to be compassionate. Now, you know, of course, when we say God be glorified in my life and God, you know, be glorified through me and all that, what we're actually saying is, you know, can the character of God be seen in me? 
Am I compassionate? Am I gracious? Am I slow to anger? Right? But I just want you to look at this list again here. Just take a look at this list. You can look at it in your notes or look at it up here on the screen. But just speak out what, which one of these characteristics kind of speaks the loudest to you. It's kind of more magnified to you than the others. Just speak it out. Gracious. Maintaining love. Slow to anger. Compassionate. Which one? Forgiving. I really want you to meditate on this list. Sometime today. It could be during your work duty or whatever. Because what you'll discover is this list, there's, there's certain aspects of God's character that really speak to us because there's something that resonates in our spirit with what we need, you know? Just with who God is and, and what he can do for us and his love for us. I don't know if this is the list you were expecting God to give Moses. By the way, if you didn't have a good father or you had a bad example of a father, this is the list of a father. I love, you know, this verse here in Jude 121. Keep yourselves in the love of God. I love that. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Another one that says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. I just want you to pray that right now and just say, God, would you just direct my heart into your love, my mind into your love, my spirit into your love this morning? You know, in the whole story of Moses, For the first time in all that we read about Moses, we read that Moses just faced down to the ground and worshipped God. Isn't that amazing? It wasn't when God parted the Red Sea. It wasn't when God provided clear water for everybody. It wasn't when the manna came. It wasn't with all these things. It was as God revealed his character to Moses. For the first time we read, he just faced down to the ground and worshiped God. Just take a moment to do that. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. And here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy. Altogether wonderful to me. 
King of all days, O oh, so highly exalted, glorious in heaven above. Humbly you came to the earth you created, all for love's sake became poor. And here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. So here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. Let's just sing that first verse again. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. And here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether worthy, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. We're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to pick up um, right here. <laughs> God tests us. And I want to talk about that too. It's an important little building block for us to have is that there are times when God tests us. Um, Job says, you know, he knows the way that I take and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I've kept to his way without turning aside. You know, the whole thing with Abraham uh, and his son, Isaac, when, when he was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. Did you know that whole thing was a test? Yeah, because it said at the very beginning, it says sometime later God tested Abraham and uh, said, take your son, your only son. Huh, only son. Only son. Isn't that, there's another verse in the Bible that says only son. What is that one? It's, um, oh, yeah, John 3.16. Yeah. 
Only son. Uh, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Now, you know, it says uh, in Hebrews, it says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him. So there, you know, it's clear both of the, in both passages in Genesis and in Hebrews, it was a test from God. Now, why would, why would Abraham have been willing to sacrifice his son Isaac? This is how amazing Abraham's understanding of, of God was, you know, even without the Bible, <laughs> right? It says Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. You know, so Abraham knew, hey, if God created the mountains and he created the ocean, he created all these amazing things, I don't assume that God will have any problem raising Isaac from the dead because I know God has promised me that he's going to bless me through Isaac. So if that's God's plan, uh, I'm sure God's just going to raise him from the dead because he's powerful enough. It's amazing, isn't it, that, that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And then, of course, God blessed him because he passed the test. We read this angel said to him, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. Oh, the Lord said to him, he had to swear by himself because there's nobody greater to swear by. So he's like, I swear by myself, um, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And that's where we get the whole uh, you know, thing about um, God's blessing of Abraham. You know, what happens if we're going through this kind of a testing period, though, and something really happens that just makes us really, really angry at people and at God? I think that's an important thing to think about for a second, because sometimes there's things that happen that just make us really angry. It's a great question. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad I asked it. <laughs> you know, I, I love the Psalms, don't you? The Psalms are such a beautiful source of devotion for us. They're a great devotional source. There's this, there's Psalms about prosperity, like these ones here, you know, blessed is the man who not, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And it says, like, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that, you know, won't fail and bear fruit and all that stuff. And it says, um, in all that he does, he prospers. I love that. There's Psalms of hope. Did you, you know, there's like in Psalm 25, 5, you know, guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are my God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. I like that. My hope is in you all day long. And then there's Psalms of joy. You know, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Isn't that great? Fullness of joy. Like I can't eat another joy bite because I'm just full. I'm stuffed. Stuffed with joy. Full of joy. And then there's Psalms of trust in God. This is nice too. You know, like... By the way, we didn't get that from our money in the United States. It came from Psalm 5611, where it says, In God I trust. <laughs> I shall not be afraid. And he says, What can man do to me? I mean, yeah, what can man do? Well, I mean, actually, man can do a lot. They can rip out your hair, tear out your fingernails, hurt you. Anyways, I mean, let's not get distracted. You know, in God I trust. In God I trust. <laughs> Then there's psalms of peace, right? There's um, these psalms here, but the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. I like that. I like peace. I do. You know, I, I enjoy peace. I mean, peace is better than like, you know, arguing and stuff, right? And then there's beautiful psalms like this one in, in, uh, in Psalm 58. It says, you know, break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Mm. Lord, tear out the fangs. Of those people, let them vanish like water that flows away. And when they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts along. Oops. (laughs) 
Um, hmm, not so nice. All that peace kind of out the window, right? What about where he says, where David writes, you know, you know, to, to break the heads of the children over their rocks? Not very nice. Or what about where David says, you know, appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy, he writes in Psalm 109. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May may they be driven from their ruined homes. May the creditors seize all that they have. (laughs) Wow. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off and their names blotted out from the next generation. And it goes on and on and on. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. (laughs) Jeez. You don't hear very many sermons from Psalm 109, do you? We can call these the Psalms of blood, guts, and revenge. What's going on with David there? Now, if we were reading this in an Episcopal church, we'd say, you know, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So say that. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. You know, the idea is sometimes they say, well, Christians ought not to use these psalms because Christians shouldn't feel this way. Hmm. Well, what happens when you feel that way? (laughs) <laughs> there's there's three things you can do with these these desires for vengeance and your anger the first thing you can do is you can act it out if you're mad at somebody kill them you know or at least set their car on fire like somebody did in honolulu a couple months ago he's mad at his father so he set his car on fire What about, um, or you can deny it. That's another thing you can do with your anger, is deny it. It's almost worse. Oh, I'm not angry. No, I'm fine. No. No, I know. He cheated on me. But, I mean, I'm not angry. I, I, you know. Let me tell you something. When you suppress your anger, it's going to resurface in other areas of your life. In addictions, in... Depression. Did you know depression is always unresolved anger? My parents have been doing marriage and family counseling for over 40 years. The most skilled counselors I've ever met. And that's not even just me saying that. Other people have said your parents are the best counselors in the world. They tell me depression is always unresolved anger. Whenever they meet with people who are struggling with depression, it's always a matter of seeing the Holy Spirit just kind of unveil the root that is there of anger. Oftentimes it's anger from when they were very young and they weren't able to express it. It's important for us to express our anger. If you deny it, it'll resurface in other areas of your life. It'll explode at some point. So I wouldn't recommend either of these two, acting it out or denying it. The third one is probably a better thing to do with your anger and it's to surrender it to God. Give it to Him. Expressing our anger is so important for us to do. 
but not to each other, to God. Even venting to someone isn't a biblical concept. This whole idea of like, I'm sorry, I just want to, you know, throw up on you and then say, thanks for letting me vent. It's not a biblical concept. You want to vent? Then go to the Lord and vent. Because otherwise, you're just piling your trash on somebody else. If somebody starts venting to me, I just cut them off immediately and say, you know what? I am not your sounding board. Do not vent to me. That's your trash, not mine. Take it to the Lord. There's this thing called the cross. And you can vent there if you'd like. It poisons relationships. It colors view of people. It does all kinds of things. And it's just not even a biblical concept. You know, I think this is what David was doing. I think maybe instead of blood, guts, and revenge, we should just call these psalms, you know, a moment of therapy. (laughs) David just taking a moment to write these things down, express what he was really thinking and going through to the Lord. I remember one time there was this real injustice that happened to our family, and it was, it was horrific. And, uh, you know, I had all kinds of people from all over saying, you, know, you should sue, you should sue, you can sue them for millions of dollars and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, you know, it's not that I don't want to, but it's just not how I roll. And, um, but I was really upset about it. I remember I just got into my car right after we found out about it. I got into my car, and I was just driving by myself, kind of on a road that I didn't know where I was going. And I just started yelling at the Lord. And I was like, God, we have put our lives on the line for you. And blah, 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 blah. And I just started yelling at him, you know, and just, ah, and then she does this to us. Blah, 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 blah. And I just, you know, yelled and yelled and yelled. And finally, I, you know, turned around and went back home. And I said, thank you, Lord, for just letting me just get angry about this. I said, you know, now, God, I forgive her. And uh, I know, you know, you've got my back and you're our sustainer and our refuge and our provider and all that. And so I forgive her, Lord. And I went inside and, and, and I went up the stairs and Kiara saw me and she goes, Daddy! And I said, Hi, Kiara! And I discovered I lost my voice because <laughs> I'd been yelling at God. <laughs> we need to express anger. Let me tell you, anger is a very important godly emotion. The reason why we have a problem with God's anger is because we've seen such bad examples of it in our own human experience, and we translate that onto Him. We transpose that towards God. But there are things we should get angry about. There's injustices in this this world that ought to break our hearts, make us furious, I mean, agitate us in the Spirit, cause us to want to seek God about what to do. You know, there's things in this world that, that make us angry, but we have to give that anger to him. Here's what, here's what the Bible says, three important things the Bible says about anger. First of all, in your anger, do not sin. It says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. So, this means in your anger, for, in, for instance, do not gossip. Right? In your anger... Don't hurt someone, which is easy to do in our anger, isn't it? As we lash out at them. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. 
Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't hold on to your anger for even more than a day. Because if you hold on to anger, it's going to lead to bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, all kinds of stuff, poisonous things from the seed of anger, if you hold on to it. Uh, what's that? There, um, these are all from this passage here. Yep, yep. And the third thing it says, Paul says here, as he says, you know, he says, if we do hold on to anger, we're actually giving the devil a foothold. Quoting him there. So we're actually giving the devil a foothold into our life. And that guy doesn't deserve squat. Not even a foothold in our life. I have no respect for him. I like to trash talk him. It's kind of fun. Now, why does God test us? You know, I mean, why does any teacher test us? Why do we, why does, why do we get tests in school? What, Dad? How? What? What does it teach us? Okay. Yeah? 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 And it, it kind of reinforces that we've actually learned something, right? That we know something, yeah, uh-huh. To make us grow, yeah. Particularly, um, particularly when we think about, um, you know, have you ever, like, missed a math class or something, and then you come back the next day and you're completely lost because you just missed, like, you know, seven formulas that the teacher gave, you know? It's kind of like tests kind of, also, they kind of see whether we know what we need to know in order to go on to the next concept, right? Or the next thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we hope that. Sometimes it's not the first idea that occurs to us in the midst of a test. But yeah, you're right. I mean, if we have the bigger picture, it sure helps us in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, or just about anything. Um, he gives us a couple reasons here in Deuteronomy 8. He says, you know, he says, I tested you. Uh, I led you in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep my commands. So, so sometimes God tests us to know what is in our heart. And to see whether or not we'll keep his commands. And then there's another one in Exodus 16:4. He says, "I will test them and see whether they, whether or not they follow my instructions." I like that one. There's been a few times where God has told me, you know, things to do, and I've done them, and there's been no discernible difference. <laughs> you know, and you're like, "Did God tell me to do that, or was it just, you know?" I think sometimes God's just testing us to see whether we're following his instructions, you know? And he's like, okay, good. Derek's following my instructions. So anyways, Derek, here's a bigger thing that I want you to do. Like, oh, okay, good. David writes, you know, I know that you test the heart, God, and you're pleased with integrity. This is when it came, comes to giving. And David was giving towards the temple, and, and uh, he was giving a lot. And then he saw that all the people were giving a lot, too. And he was just filled with joy about that. He said, all these things I've given willingly and with honest intent, and now I've seen with joy how willingly your people uh, who are here have given to you too. Sometimes we get tested in the area of giving. 
I remember when uh, Acacia was born, and I posted this picture on Facebook, and I said, hi, baby girl, welcome to our world. It's full of beauty for you to explore. I wrote, from interesting people and amazing friendships to broad mountain ranges and sunny beaches, there's much for you to love and enjoy. So sing, dance, laugh, giggle, cry, smile, frown, pray, worship, crawl, walk, jump, run, love, and be loved, because this earth was created for you. And then I wrote, I look forward to getting to know you. Your mother is amazing. You're going to enjoy growing up with Andrew and Kiara. They already love you. Our precious daughter, we're honored to be your parents, and we're so glad you're here. E como mai, which in Hawaiian means welcome to our land. And dad. Another little picture of her. But uh, two hours or so after she was born, you know, we um, were in the hospital room. Kind of my favorite moment is after the nurses and doctors leave and family leaves and everybody leaves, and it's just me and Hiran and, and uh, the baby, um, baby girl, Acacia. And she's just kind of sleeping in Hiran's arms, and I dimmed the lights just to make it a little, um, you know, darker in the room, and and all of a sudden, Hiran looks down and goes, does she look blue to you? And I said, yeah. I, said, I think it's just the lights. So I turn the lights up, you know, and no, she's still blue. And, and by blue, I mean like dark, 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 dark blue. <laughs> um, and so I kind of went over and I shook her a little bit. And it kind of looked like the color was coming back. But um, then it went back to dark blue. And I saw her chest wasn't going up and down. And poked her nose, nothing, so I, I thought, huh, I should get a nurse, so um, I just took my head outside the door, and I said, you know, this is kid number three, right, so number one, you're like, oh my gosh, number three, you're like, eh, I'm sure it's fine, but uh, so I stuck my head out the door, and I said, so our baby's dark blue, is that normal, and the nurses freak out, they jump up, they come running in, and and uh, and immediately they hook her up to oxygen, and her oxygen level has gone way down to the, almost the point of brain damage, 30%, something like that, and so... Um, they stick her on oxygen, and the color starts to slowly come back. But the problem is her chest wasn't going up and down. And so they called the doctor, and the doctor came, and he said, you know, this is really strange. He said, sometimes babies turn blue when they're first kind of learning how to breathe because their lungs are expanding for the first time because all they've had is liquid in the womb, and now they're, like, experiencing air for the first time. He said, so sometimes babies go through that. He said, but this is very, very different. He said, um, uh, you know, the color has come back, but her chest isn't going up and down. He said, so we need to medevac her immediately to Oahu, to Honolulu, and see what's going on. And so I think the hardest moment was when we said goodbye to Hiran, and she was able to just kind of touch her, and then we loaded her in the ambulance. And uh, as we're pulling up at the little airport, and she's about to get loaded onto the plane, and I'm going to go with her, I just said to the Lord, I was like, Lord, all of our children are yours. I mean, we're super excited about being asked to be their parents and kind of guide them and navigate them, first of all, to relationship with you and then, you know, through this life. But um, ultimately, all of our kids are yours. You're the one who created them. And I said, if you want to take them, you can have them whenever you'd like. That's that's your um, prerogative as God, um, because you're God and I'm not. And then I said, but <laughs> as her dad, I would really love it if you didn't take her because I want to get to know her and um, just hear her laugh and learn her sense of humor and her view of the world and, and most of all, witness her discovery of you because you're so amazing. 
And the next thing that popped into my head was, I just can't do this by myself right now. I'm going through so much right now, I just can't deal with this. I said, God, I just, um, I don't know what to do. So I stuck it on my Facebook, this picture here. And uh, we flew over to Oahu. Her chest still wasn't going up and down. Um, without the oxygen, there was no um, sign of her being able to survive on her own. And uh, I posted up. By the time we landed in Oahu, which was like, I don't know, 40 minutes later or something like that, there were literally hundreds of comments from people from all over the world. And I'm kind of a, like, world nerd, so I'm counting. And there's, like, over 80 different nations. <laughs> people are praying for her. There's, like, entire churches that were praying for her in, in Germany and around the world. And um, even one of my friends who who's a Hollywood actress... Um, and not a Christian, she just wrote, you know, I'm praying for the first time in my life. I, um, we got to Honolulu and, and we're going up the elevator. And suddenly, in the elevator, I just don't know how to explain it, I immediately knew that something had happened. And we we got to the um, neonatal care unit, and um, they rolled her in, and that's where they have preemies, you know, like babies that are born early. So there were lots of like little babies, like this big, and then there was acacia, <laughs> like this giant baby that was two weeks late. <laughs> uh, it was kind of funny. And uh, and they they ran forty three tests on her and couldn't find anything wrong. And they took her off oxygen, and she was fine. And um, we flew back to the Big Island. And I was sitting on the plane flying back here three days later with her. And there was this old Hawaiian auntie sitting next to me. And I kind of knew her family because she has a well-known family here on the Kona Coast. And, and she's probably 95 or something like that. And she said, oh, how old is she? And I said, three days. And she said, oh. I said, can I hold her? And I said, yeah, of course. I let her hold her, and as soon as she was holding her, it was like the Lord just spoke to me this reference, James 1.12, and I had no idea what that was. And so I pulled out my phone, and I knew I was supposed to look it up, so I look it up, and it says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. My first thought was, oh, this is one of those damn tests. <laughs> I don't know whether the test was, you know, that I can't do this on my own. I don't know if that was a test. And just enlisting the help of a community of Christians who care. I don't know if the test was, you know, God, these are your children and, and uh, you're God and I'm not. I don't know if that was a test. I, I don't know what the test was. <laughs> But I just took her back from that Hawaiian auntie when she gave her to me, and I thought, you know, here's my little crown of life right here, a testimony to the fact that we love God. We got home, and Andrew was super excited, and Jar was super excited. <laughs> so there are times when God tests us, and I, I mean, you know, we sometimes we fail those tests, don't we? I mean, I failed more tests than I passed, I think. Um, but as we get better and better at understanding that they're tests and that God is 
you know, has something he wants to show us and he's taking us through something, you know, we begin passing more and more of them and, and we discover his faithfulness and, and, and who he is and his love for us and all that kind of stuff. One of the biggest questions that we, that we struggle with in our, in our walk with God is, uh, and I get asked this a lot when I travel and people find out I'm a Christian. And they'll say to me, you know, how can you say God is good? And how can you say he's so loving when there's poverty in Africa, you know? And I have to kind of talk to them about that because there's poverty everywhere. Africa's a continent, 86 nations. There's wealth in Africa too, <laughs> just like there's wealth here and there's poverty here. But they'll ask that question, you know, and I call this real questions asked by real people because I think it's, it comes from a place in their heart where, you know, they're, they're wanting to know things. And they'll, they'll ask that question of, is God really good? At the same time that Acacia was healed and touched by God, one of our best friends was literally at the same time giving birth to a dead baby. These are the kind of things that happen where people question the goodness of God. And I get it. I understand why. But, you know, there's different intellectual paths that they kind of go through to get to that point. You might have somebody who says, you know, well, I have problems, for instance. You know, I have problems. I mean, of course, there's other people who have worse problems and all that. But why does nobody care? I mean, would it be that hard to help? Or they might say something like, you know, if there is a God, then why didn't he really, why didn't he do something? You know, doesn't he... Doesn't he know about this or doesn't he have the power? I mean, didn't we read that God has unlimited power to create and to restore? And then they think, you know, God must not care. And they think he must not be good. And they'll ask that question of, you know, is God good? They might say, you know, my mother was dying. Another intellectual path to get there. They might say, my mother was dying and we pray that she would be healed. You know, and she died a month later. So they think, you know, either prayer doesn't work or God didn't care. I mean, why didn't he answer our prayers? I was speaking at a DTS one time and I got to this point and this guy raised his hand and he said, well, she's in a better place, you know, implying that, you know, because the mother died, I mean, she's in a better place. And I looked at him and I said, oh, give me a break. I was like, that's just such churchianity. She's in a better place. A better place would be here on earth if she could see her children graduate from high school and see her daughter get married and, you know, have grandchildren. I mean, that, you know, I mean, that's just such a church response. And the guy like just put his hand down and shut his notebook. And I thought, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Oops. I wanted to talk to him after class, but he disappeared. And late that night, there was a knock on our door and, and that guy was standing there and I could tell he had been crying a lot. And I thought, oh, man, I'm in trouble. He said, can I talk to you? I said, yeah. (laughs) So we go, we sit down, and he said, you know, when you said, oh, that's just such a churchianity response, I said, yeah. He said, my mom had cancer, 
we found out that she had cancer and she died a month later. Even though the whole church was praying and we were praying that she would get healed, she died. He said, when you said that to me, he said, I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, it's true. He said, you know, when my mom died, we went out of the hospital and the first person we saw was our pastor and he was in the parking lot. He was going to come up, but he was late. And he looked at me and he said, well, she's in a better place and got in his car and drove off. He said, I realized when you spoke that to me, when you said, you know, oh, that's such a churchianity response. He said, I suddenly realized I've never been able to grieve. He said, I could never feel sad. I could never grieve about my mom dying because, I mean, how, am I, how, how, how is it okay for me to grieve when she's in a better place? I mean, I should be happy. He said, but he just cut off all my grieving. He said, I, I haven't been able to grieve. And when you said, oh, that's just such a churchianity response, he said, right after class, he said, I just took off and I went down by the beach and I've just been crying all afternoon. He said, I did so much to hurt my mom. He said, I, when I look back over the decisions of my life, he said, all of it was because of pain and anger towards my mom and dad and resentment and bitterness. He said, I would, I would do anything to be able to pick up the phone and tell her, I'm doing a DTS. He said, that would have been the answer for thousands of her prayers. He said, I wish that you know, she could know that I'm learning who God is and that I'm actually, you know, I've given my life to him. And that, you know, I'm just starting to understand his love. He said, I've just been able to cry all afternoon and just grieve and mourn the fact that my mom's not here. You know, I mean, technically, she's in a better place. <laughs> it's true. I guess. That's what we believe, right, as Christians? I mean that all of this is wonderful, but in the presence of God, it's so much better. I know when my grandfather died, he had ga gathered his kids around the bed and, and he knew he was going to die and he just said some things to them and all of a sudden he said, oh, do you hear the music? Do you hear the music? And it was like this light just came on his face and then all of a sudden he said, oh, there he is! And he died. I mean, I get it. But we can't rush people to that place. <laughs> People need to go through this grieving and mourning process and eventually get to the place where they have expressed all of their pain and grief towards God and all of this stuff, and, and eventually they can get to the place where they're able to celebrate that person being in a better place. We can't rush them there. That's not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's job to walk people through that process. Our job, if you're ever in that situation, is just to be there with them. Just to love them, hug them, ask if you can go grocery shopping, can you pay some bills, can you help raise some money for them, whatever it is that they need, and just be there for them. That's our job as Christians. People go through these kinds of experiences, though, and they think, why didn't God answer our prayers? I mean, you know, God is good, really? Sometimes, you know, they might use an even broader approach they might say something like well what about natural disasters or poverty or you know what about like you know unjust politicians or corruption and greed or you know prejudicial laws or whatever they point to in society these kind of big picture items how can you 
say God is good, like I said yesterday, when 200,000 people die in a tsunami and they, they just make up their mind that it's not possible for God is good and they'll put their angry eyebrows on, which are really out of place in this slide for some reason. Sometimes Christians say stupid things like they'll say, you know, well, God helps those who help themselves. That was the number one coded scripture in America in 2015, by the way. For God, it helps those who help themselves. Finally replaced for God so loves the world that he gave his only son last year in 2015. Most quoted scripture. Except the only problem is it's not in the Bible. <laughs> That's the problem. It's not a scripture. As a matter of fact, the opposite is in the Bible. We read, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, there was nothing we could do to help ourselves. And Christ died for us. That's why we read in Romans 3, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is nothing we could do about our sinful condition. We couldn't help ourselves. But God helped us justified freely through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Is God good? Well, let's answer this question because we need to answer it. We need to know. The first thing is something we've already talked about. You and I are not God. We don't have eternal power, divine nature. We don't see things as God sees them. If you ever wondered why God is God and Buddha is not God or Krishna or Mo, I call him, because um, Muhammad's a little long to say, so shorten it to Mo. Uh, if you wonder why any of those people are not God and God is God, is because none of them have eternal power or divine nature other than our God. <laughs> and we don't see things as God sees them. I, I just want to point out this story to you as an example in Scripture how we don't see things as God sees them. You know, we read this story where uh, there was this, this lame man who his friends really loved him and they wanted him to be healed, so they took him to Jesus, but they couldn't get into the house. And so they took him up onto the roof and they took apart the tiles and they lowered him down in there. And it says when Jesus saw their faith, which is interesting, it wasn't the faith of the lame man, by the way, saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow that speaks blasphemy? <clears throat> who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking, and of course he asked brilliant questions. He says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Great question. And he says, what is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Obviously it's a lot easier to say get up and walk because... Jesus knew what it was going to take to be able to say your sins are forgiven. The work of the cross. He says, but that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we've seen remarkable things today. Now, look at this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friends, your sins are forgiven. What Jesus saw was that this guy needed his sins forgiven. Maybe he'd been told, you know, the reason why you're paralyzed is because of this and this and this, or because you did this and this, or because your dad did this and this, or your mom. That's why this has happened to you. It wouldn't surprise me because there's even Christians who say stuff like that. 
Maybe. I don't know. But Jesus went up to him and knew that this guy needed his sins forgiven. And he said, your sins are forgiven. And they said, oh, that's blasphemy. And then they said, you know, when, when he healed the guy, suddenly everybody was amazed and gave praise to God. And they were filled with awe. And they said, we've seen remarkable things today. They hadn't seen anything. They missed the whole point. Look, I, I tell you, I, I, I love it when people get healed. That's great. You know, whatever. I get much more excited when somebody just gets to know the love of God and there is restoration that takes place in their life. I mean, I, I, just, I love that. <laughs> Look, you and I are not God. And the other thing we have to admit is that we're not completely good. I mean, I'm not saying we're bad people, although we are sinful. So technically we are, but we're not completely good. We may have some ideas of what would be a good thing, you know, but but we're not completely good. Only God is completely good. And then I would say this at this point, too. If if God is not good, there's no hope for this world. I mean, what are you going to put your hope in? Some president or a governmental system or... An economic system, those will collapse. Everything will collapse. All that stuff has collapsed throughout history. We don't have the Roman Empire anymore here. That collapsed. We don't have the largest empire in the world, the Angkor Wat Empire, anymore. Most people don't even know who the Angkor Wats were. They had the largest reigning empire in the history of the world, 846 years or something like that. They, they ruled all of Asia and Southeast Asia from Cambodia. I love Cambodia. Brilliant people, smart leaders. Well, is God good? Yeah, he's good. Let's answer this question because first of all, he says he's good. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's got to be the only shepherd I know of who will lay down his life for the sheep. (laughs) I don't know of a single shepherd, and I know some shepherds, who would lay down their life for the sheep. I don't know any shepherd who would do that. They will do what they can to protect the sheep, but if it comes down to the sheep or themselves, <laughs> they're going to save their life. Sheep can be replaced. And yet God says, I am the good shepherd, and I even lay down my life for the sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. So God is good because he says he's good. God is also good because people testify to his goodness. People testify to the goodness of God. We read in in 1 Chronicles, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever, David writes. Um, In Psalm 119.68, you know, he writes, You are good, and what you do is good. So teach me your decrees. I love that. God, you're good, and what you do is good, so teach me everything, you know, because I need to know this. I recognize, God, I'm not good. I need to learn from you. So God is good because he says he's good. He's good because there are thousands of years of testimony from people to the goodness of God. But let's look at some of these intellectual paths here for a second. You know, this, this thing about my mother was dying, and we pray that she would be healed. What were the expectations here? That she would never die? Because that would be something. (laughs) Right? 
Ecclesiastes says there's one appointment that all of us have, and it's the appointment with death. We don't know when it's going to come. It's on our calendar somewhere. We all have it. It is appointed each person a day to die. I mean, was the expectation that God would extend her life? Okay. Or improve the quality of life? Okay. I mean, we have biblical precedents for that, don't we? God extending life. One of the stories we have about that is in Hezekiah. You know, King Hezekiah was really, really sick. And the prophet came to him and said, God told me you're going to die. And Hezekiah freaks out. He starts praying, oh, God, 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 please don't let me die. It says he turned to the wall and he begged and pleaded with God, don't let me die, 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 don't let me die. And finally, God says to the prophet, go back and tell Hezekiah I'll give him 15 more years. So the prophet comes back and says, God says he's going to heal you and give you 15 more years. You know what? It was the worst 15 years of Hezekiah's life. He saw his kids turn their backs on God. He saw the, the, the nation turn their back on God. His sons fumbled the whole kingdom. And he went through more grief and pain in those 15 years than I think he'd ever gone before, ever experienced before in his life. I bet 10 years into his life, he was thinking, I understand now that God wanted to spare me of something. Would have been better to have been with him at this point than experience all of this. Now, I'll tell you something. I firmly believe in healing. I have seen lots of healing. I remember when I was a little kid and we were in the cathedral in Switzerland and there was this lady who was brought in in a wheelbarrow, not a wheelchair, like a wheelbarrow. And she was brought in and she was just this pile of bones. And she was like right beside me and my brother. And this guy was speaking named Nikki Cruz. And, uh, and Nikki was speaking and all of a sudden he saw her and he began to weep. And then he said... He said, you have held her long enough. In the name of Jesus, let her go. Be healed. And, and it, was like, it was like somebody had pressed an eject button. She just went out of the wheelbarrow and her bones snapped together. It was like... And I remember she just started running around the inside of the cathedral. And my brother and I just thought it was the funniest thing in the world because she just got catapulted out of this thing. So we're laughing and we're counting like how many times she's running around. She's like... Oh, I'm sure she's exhausted by now. It's like, no, yeah, I don't see her. And, and oh, yeah, no, no, there she is. She's still running. And sure enough, she come running by, and we like <laughs> 17. And uh, and a lot of people got healed in that meeting. Nikki Cruz actually canceled his flight. He was supposed to fly out that night. He just canceled it because there were all kinds of healings going on. Listen, I believe in healing. I have no problem with healing. I think it's great, and I think we can absolutely pray in faith for healing. But let me give you a little analogy here. I, you know, when Andrew was probably four years old, he came up to me and he said, Dad, guess what I got? I mean, you, I mean, you never know. I was like, you know, a roach? He's like, no. I was like, I, I don't know, a gold coin? No. You know, Like, what do you have? And finally he like stretches his hand out and he holds it and it's the key to our truck, the truck we were borrowing. And he said, it's the truck key. I said, oh yeah, you got the truck key. Now I know it's coming. Dad, yeah, can I drive the truck? I said, Andrew, uh, he goes, I know where the key goes, Dad. I said, I know, Andrew. He said, but you put the key in there and you just turn it and it comes on. I said, I know, Andrew, I know. 
What he doesn't know is this is like a 1990 truck. It's stick shift Toyota. It doesn't even have power steering. Doesn't have power anything. It has a clutch that works sometimes. It's you know, it's like one of those kinds of trucks. He can't see over the dashboard. You know, so there's that. Um, there's just a lot of reasons. It's illegal. That's another reason. And so, I mean, I'm looking at him, and he is so full of hope. And I said, you know what, Andrew? I said, in order to drive that, you need one of these. And I pulled out my wallet, and I showed him my driver's license. I said, do you have one of these? He said, no. I said, I know. It's, a, it's called a driver's license, dude. And I didn't want to tell him, I'm sure I'll let you drive the truck before you're 16. But anyways, I, he doesn't need to know that. But I, <laughs> I, said, I said, Andrew, you have to have one of these in order to drive, and you have to be 16 to get it. I said, oh. I said, how old are you? Four. I said, yep. Now, do I mind him asking me? When he says, Dad, can I drive the truck? I'm like, Andrew, you can't drive the truck. Don't ask me those questions. Is that what I, you know? No, of course not. It was the cutest thing in the world, and I could read everything about, you know. I mean, I said, Andrew, someday you can drive a truck, and it might even be this truck, (laughs) you know. And you'll be able to drive it. And, you know, I said, you'll be able to drive all kinds of places with this truck and go over lava. And But let me, I said, but, you know, since you can't drive it yet, let me show you some things about this truck that are really cool, okay? He's like, okay, Dad. So then I took him and I showed him all these kinds of things on the truck. And afterwards, he's like, Dad, I want my truck to be bright yellow. I said, that's going to be awesome, dude. It's going to be a bright yellow truck. I, I don't think God ever gets angry with us asking We can pray for healing in faith. We can pray for healing because we know God has the power. We know this person needs it, whatever. But at the end of the day, God is God, and we are not. And for whatever reason he has, which are probably reasons that we have no clue about, (laughs) he will make the decision that is best for us, and we have to trust in his goodness. What about poverty, Derek? And, you know, what about, like, all these things? Well, let me ask you something. Are these God problems or sin problems? I remember one time I was in this nation where I just met with the royalty of that nation. I came out of their palace, you know, which had a bunch of Olympic-sized swimming pools and hot tubs and hundreds of maids and servants, and we came out of their area, which was, you know, high brick wall and, and barbed wire fence and custom-made Bentley limousine, and I come out of that place for turn left, and right against the brick wall is a cardboard box of a family of about five or six people living in a cardboard box. Now, let me ask you something. Is poverty a sin problem or a God problem? It's a sin problem. Not the sin of the people in the cardboard box, but there's a whole litany of sins that contribute towards poverty. As a matter of fact, guess what? God's given us the solution for poverty. Did you know that? You know what the solution for poverty is here? Look at it. In Acts chapter 2, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All of the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and good. They They gave to anyone as he had need. Okay, poverty solved. What's the next big global issue we're supposed to be facing? This isn't communism or socialism, by the way. Those are demonic attempts to subvert the attempts, the, the plans of God. 
They really are. This is not forced by a government. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit in response to the teaching of the Word of God. Sometimes people point to this passage and want to say, see, we have communism in the Bible. It's everybody share everything with everybody. No, that's not what it is. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit directs them that they have need because they're in fellowship with each other. <clears throat> Nor does it say that they sold all of their possessions in good. They sold some things to help people meet their needs. And by the way, I'm not just talking out of my tail here. My parents were, my dad was a successful psychologist in Canada. And when they had an experience with God where he saw the Lord and the Lord said to him, psychology is man's solutions for man's problems and my solutions are in the word of God. So stop calling yourself that a psychologist. Otherwise, you know, don't call yourself a Christian because I don't want my name associated with all that crap. You know what his, his problem with psychology was this, you know, Psychology would teach people to manage their problems. God isn't interested in managing problems. He wants to set us free from them. God isn't interested in managing your lust. He wants to set you free from it. God's not interested in managing anger. He wants to set you free from it. I mean, you know, either he died on the cross and it's sufficient power for us through the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, or else it's not. And so my mom and dad sold their house and their cars and everything they had, and they gave all of the money away. So, you know, when I read this passage, I know what this is like. <coughs> to me, it's not just a, you know, theoretical thing. We've done it a couple of times. And dad had heard of this guy named Francis Schaefer, and he thought, if there's one guy who can help me, it's got to be this guy. So we moved to Switzerland and studied with this lived with this theologian, philosopher guy named Francis Schaeffer, and my dad kind of completely rethought through the whole area of counseling and coined a term called biblical counseling. And then they joined YWAM, and YWAM was starting university, and my dad had the vision for starting all of the counseling schools in the context of the University of the Nations. And so we began to travel all over Europe and the Middle East and stuff, and dad was talking about counseling and biblical counseling and doing counseling and all that kind of stuff. So this is not just theoretical to me. I know what this is like. Why is it that we always see celebrities posing with poor people in Africa or Southeast Asia or something? Why don't they pose with the poor people in the neighborhood next to theirs? I'd like to ask sometime. <laughs> That's a great shot on the cover of Us Weekly, but have you ever posed with the poor people in the neighborhood next to you? No, that would imply that they don't really care. What about natural disasters, though, Derek? Well, you know, God created the universe and the, and the laws that govern nature. You know, like if I throw this up in the air, it comes down. We call that gravity, and I'm glad I caught that. But <laughs> we call it gravity, right? I think there's laws that govern nature. Um, for instance, we had a record number of hurricanes here in this region this past year. Well, 2015. None of them were a natural disaster, though. Isn't it funny? Like, it's a natural disaster when it kills people, right? And we can have a hurricane if it doesn't kill anybody. It's not a natural disaster. It's just a hurricane. But it becomes a natural disaster when there's loss of life. So I think most natural disasters are just a result of these laws in motion and people being in those places at the time where those laws are in motion. Now, there are times where we see in the Bible that God uses natural disasters to 
make a point, but that is not our responsibility as human beings, as Christians even, to, know, to, to decide whether or not God is using a natural disaster to make a point. What we do know, though, with natural disasters is that God has never intended for humanity to suffer pointlessly or endlessly. He has never intended for humanity to suffer pointlessly or endlessly. The other thing we know about natural disasters is this, that God expects His children to be His arms of compassion and mercy to those who are in desperate need. God expects His children to be His arms of compassion and mercy to those who are in desperate need. I love Monty's story. You know, Monty is this Muslim guy down in Indonesia. And after the tsunami came through and wiped out, you know, a whole bunch of things, you know, a bunch of people went down to that region to help. And Monty said to one of the YWAMers there, you know, you Christians, he's a Muslim guy, he says, you Christians, you really, you're very confusing, he says. The Buddhists come here to help the Buddhists. The Muslims come here to help the Muslims. He said, and and you Christians, you know, you just come here and you help everybody. (laughs) Very confusing to him. Became a Christian through that. I mean, our job is not to decide whether or not God is judging some nation or some people group or some region or whatever. That's not our job. Our job is to respond with compassion and mercy. I love the story of Horatio Spafford. You know, Horatio lived in Chicago and uh, in the 1800s. He was a very successful guy. He, he was an attorney, real estate broker. His wife was also very successful. And here's a picture of his house. Um, they were kind of well-known as real estate investors and very prominent. Here's a copy of his business card, actually. Here's a copy of his business card. When his son was four years old, he had a fever and died. Scarlet fever, his only son. And a few months later, there was a huge fire that ripped through the city of Chicago on October 10th, 1871. It was called the Great Chicago Fire. And it burned down everything that Horatio Spafford owned. So he just lost his son and just lost everything he had. And he said to his wife, Anna, he said, you know, let's just get out of here. And let's go to England and help our friend over there, D.L. Moody, who was doing some evangelism things. He said, let's go over there and just help him and take kind of a family vacation. At the last minute before they left, there were just some paperwork things that came up, and Horatio Spafford had to sign some documents and all that. And he said, you know what, I don't want to spoil a family vacation, so why don't you guys go to England, and I'll meet you there in a couple of weeks. And so his wife set off on this boat here, the Ville de Havre, it was called. And they took off on this boat to go to England. Horatio went back to Chicago, signed the paperwork that he had to sign. And here's a picture of his wife and his four daughters who went on that trip. And uh, he signed the paperwork that he had to sign. And then he went to New York and was going to catch up with them. He got up in the morning. He was staying at a hotel. And he got up in the morning and he opened the door and there was a newspaper there. And here's the article, the actual article that was... Uh, in that newspaper, the New York Times. And it says that the Ville de Havre got an accident with a boat called the Lockern, and in only 12 minutes, they sunk, claiming the lives of 226 people. 
And he started shaking as he realized what was happening, that he had just lost his son, that he had just lost everything he had, and now this boat sank. And later on he found out that his wife had stood there bravely on the deck and that she watched one wave take the youngest daughter, the, ne- the oldest daughter, the next wave took the other daughter, the next daughter, and her last thing that she felt was her baby being ripped out of her arms by a giant wave before her head hit a plank and she went unconscious. Here's an artist's rendition of the accident that happened. As he's standing there, completely shell-shocked, and not knowing what to do, he realized his four daughters were gone and his, thought maybe his wife was gone too. This guy comes running up and says, Are you Mr. Horatio Spafford? And he said, Yes. Did I have a telegram for you? The telegram was from his wife and it read, Saved alone. What shall I do? Here's an actual picture of the telegram. It says, Saved alone. What shall I do? Mrs. Goodwin, children, Willie Culvert, who was a friend of theirs, lost. I'll go with the Lorio, which was the boat that picked her up, until your answer. Reply. Horatio Spafford immediately just left his stuff in his room, ran down to the boats and caught a, got a ticket to get on the boat and sail as fast as possible over to England. He's on the boat and they're... Suddenly the boat stops and the captain drops the anchor and calls for Horatio Spafford. And Horatio Spafford comes up to the captain's deck and the captain says, Mr. Spafford, according to my calculations, we are in the place where your daughter's drowned. We dropped anchor and we want to just give you some time here. Let us know when you're ready to go on. Horatio writes that he went back to his room And he wrote two things. The first one was a letter to his sister, Rachel. And he says, you know, we are in the spot, we are passing over the spot where the boat went down in mid-ocean, the water three miles deep. But I do not think of my little lambs as being down there. They are safe, our dear lambs, in the arms of the Good Shepherd. And then the second thing he wrote was a hymn. Here's the actual copy of the hymn that he wrote. Still on the stationery of the hotel he had stayed at. I just thought it'd be good if we just sung this hymn together. If you know it, sing it along. If you know it in another language, you can sing it in your language, whatever. When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my law thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well my soul, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. The 
Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Third verse. My sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Verse 4. And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sighed. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. He's looking out his window. He's seeing these same waves that took his daughter's lives. And he's experiencing those sorrows like sea billows roll. And, you know, you look at the second verse here where he says, you know, I don't know if it's an attack of Satan. I don't know if it's a test, a trial. I don't know. But let this control me. You know, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And then, I mean, who writes about joy in a time like this? And he says, you know, my sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought. He found something to be joyful about. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. His, they ended up having one more daughter who became a really good friend of a, name, a girl named Elizabeth Elliot. And uh, Elizabeth Elliot asked her, you know, what was your dad's favorite verse from that hymn that he wrote? And he He always said it was the fourth verse because he knew when he saw Jesus, he would see his family again. Now, you fast forward a few hundred years, and I'm in Israel, and I was doing some reconciliation stuff with Jews and Arabs and Palestinians and stuff, and I was just exhausting, and I needed a break, and I just kind of went for a walk down in the Arab district of Jerusalem. And uh, and I saw this. I I was like, God, I just need a place where I can escape to right now. (laughs) And I saw this, this... kind of a hobbit-looking door, and it said open on it. And I thought, it's a sign. It says open. So (laughs) I opened it, and I walked into this hallway right here. 
And uh, it was beautiful. And as I walked through the building, I mean, it, I didn't know what it was. It was just like this gorgeous furniture and really delicately and delicately and elegantly appointed uh, decorations. And the thing that struck me was just the peace in this place. And I couldn't figure out why is this place here. And, and I mean, it's in the middle of the, the Arab district of Jerusalem, which is really busy and dirty. And, you know, you're just like, it's just constant action going on. And, you know, it's, just, it's fun. I love it. But, it, you know, it's just... I needed a break from all that. And in this place, in the middle of this place, is this kind of a refuge. And I, um, I just was sitting there. I sat down at this table right over there. And this, this guy comes up to me. He's got a tuxedo on and this white towel over his arm. And he said, would you like something to drink? And I said, oh, is this a restaurant? He said, well, it's a hotel. You're in the restaurant part. I said, okay, great. Yeah, I'll get something to drink. Two weeks later, somebody... Got in contact with me, a friend of mine, Rick Ridings, and he said, hey, you know, let's get together to talk about reconciliation stuff. He does a lot of things in that region as well. And so I said, hey, I know of a great place to meet. So we sat down at that table again, this time the two of us. And he said, well, you know the history of this place, right? And I said, no. He said, you don't? I said, no. He said, oh, you know Horatio Spafford? I said, yeah, the it is well with my soul guy. He goes, yeah. He said, did you hear what happened after he got to England? I said, no. He said, well, him, his church in Chicago had told him the reason why all of this happened to you is because of unconfessed sin in your life that you need to confess to us. So they excommunicated him from their church. So he said to Anna, he said, you know what? He said, let's not go back to Chicago. There's too much pain there. He said, let's, you know, ask those good YWAM questions. You know, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Where do you want me to go? <laughs> and so they, they asked those questions, and the Lord sent them to Israel. And they went there, and they discovered there was a tremendous need for reconciliation. So they bought this old building that was a 1,000 years old, restored it, and made it a center for reconciliation for Jews, Arabs, and Palestinians. And then they discovered, you know, there's people, that, there's orphans from this conflict. And, and so they started over 13 orphanages all over Israel for people that, that, whose parents had been killed in the conflicts between Jews, Arabs, and Palestinians. And then they discovered, man, there's hungry people everywhere. We need to feed them. So they started all these feeding stations all over Jerusalem. And all of this was funded because of the selling of his hymn. Isn't that great? His hymn just took off and sold worldwide. And he just took the profits from his hymn and just dumped it into Israel, into reconciliation and orphanages and feeding the hungry. He writes that everything he did in Israel was way more important and valuable than anything he had done in Chicago as an attorney or a real estate broker. When he died in 1888 of malaria, the post office in Jerusalem shut down for three days because they got so much mail, cards from all over the world. I was an orphan. You guys took me in. Now I'm married and I have my own kids. Our family was hungry. We had nowhere to go, and you fed us and took us in. I'm Arab, and I hated the Jews all my life. I was raised to hate the Jews, and in one of your reconciliation seminars, I forgave. Is God good? Yes, because he says he's good, and because people testify to his goodness. Right before Horatio Spafford died, the last thing he wrote was, the goodness of God does not change with your circumstances. The goodness of God does not change with your circumstances. He is good. 
whatever it is that you've been through in your life, whatever it is that your family has been through, just in the next few days, tomorrow, as we look at how do we have relationship without fear, God is going to just show His goodness to you in the midst of everything you've been through. He's going to reveal where He was in those times. And you're going to see His goodness. Whenever I get asked to speak on hearing the voice of God, I change the title to Recognizing the Voice of God because I believe that He's always been speaking to us. We just didn't recognize it was Him. And you'll see how God's goodness has actually been a foundation for your life, whether or not you even realized He was there. And that's where we're going to pick up tomorrow.